Good morning. My name is Chris Colquitt. For those of you who may not know me, I'm the uh, RUF campus minister around here uh, for the undergrads at Northwestern along with Ian. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, it is, it's Youth Sunday, and this is not a typical Youth Sunday passage, but we are going to <laughs> attend to it all the same. I would, before, before we jump in, um, a word to our youth, uh, whether you are young or about to graduate high school um, or in college. Uh, in preparing for this sermon, I, I prayed and thought as much about my daughters and son as I did about my wife and our own marriage. And many of you will be called to marriage someday. And either now or soon in the future, much of your thoughts, uh, energy, and potentially tears will be spent trying to figure out to whom you will be married. And let me give you my number one piece of dating advice. The best thing you can do is to think about marriage as you think about dating. Um, Consider what it is that God has designed marriage for as you consider hanging out with boys and girls uh, to that end. That may seem weird and creepy, uh, but it's actually rather wise. Secondly, uh, for all of us and especially for our young people, we need to ask ourselves a question which is at least partially answered by this text, which is what does it look like to be a godly man and a godly woman? What does it look like to be a man and a woman? You are young people now, and you are growing up into adulthood, what does it look like to be a man? What does it look like to be a woman? This is a controversial question to ask today, but let me just say that the Bible tells us that God made you man and woman on purpose and with a purpose, and it's worth looking in to see what God made you for. With that, let me pray for us as we begin. God in heaven, we rejoice that you have revealed yourself to us in your word Lord, we couldn't know you if you didn't, and so now we pray that you would help us. Holy Spirit, be with me, be with all of us, that we might see clearly what you have for us in this text, and that ultimately our hearts would be drawn to Christ, our one and only hope and trust in salvation. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, let's acknowledge up front, this is a challenging passage. It's just challenging. The, the, the entire idea of, of submission in marriage in particular is challenging, but it'd be even more challenging, right, uh, with these particularly hard phrases here, right? It's hard enough to submit without being called the weaker vessel and told to emulate Sarah who calls her husband Lord, right? We've got some stuff to deal with in this passage, but if we can endure for a minute and try to understand what Peter is saying here, I think we'll see that there's a beautiful picture that he is painting, beautiful if still challenging, um, and so worthy of our attention. Uh, if I were to retitle this sermon uh, on husbands and wives' works, but I would, I would probably title it Marriage in Exile. Marriage in Exile. Recall that for Peter, our identity as Christians is seen as being sojourners and exiles. We are like the people of Israel of old, who at the beginning of their story lived in tents, wanderers without a home in the land of promise, and then at the end of their story are put into exile, far away from their home. And like them, we are citizens of a kingdom in which we currently do not reside. We find ourselves 
in exile. We have been born again to a living hope and to a salvation and inheritance that is sure in Christ that will be revealed in the last days. But for now, we're here. And that means that for a little while, we will encounter trials and suffering. And Peter's helping us to see what it looks like to live in that little while. His call throughout this letter is to conduct ourselves, as he says, with fear of God throughout our time of exile, purifying our souls and rejecting the patterns and passions of our fallen world. That is the posture with which Peter addresses marriage in this text. Peter asks, what does it look like to have marriage in exile? When the institution of marriage itself and the participants in it are affected by sin. What does it look like to be married in that realm? And his answer at the biggest, at the highest level is this. It's the same answer he gives us for the rest of the Christian life, which is that we are to live by the patterns and practices of our true home, of our heavenly kingdom, even as we live in this world of exile. Our structure this morning is fairly simple. Uh, most leaders are going to walk through the text, but before that, we'll take a quick look at Peter's view of marriage, and then look at his instructions for, hu- for wives and then husbands. If we wanted to build a picture of the biblical ideal of marriage and the roles of husband and wife in it, this would not be the text that we would start with. In this text, Peter largely assumes the ideal and assumes that it is good. And he's asking more practical, realistic questions of what does that look like in the mess that we've made of our lives? If we were going to build such a picture, and I think we maybe need to because for what Peter is assumed as both true and good, maybe we don't necessarily see as true and good, we'd be better to go to Genesis 1 and 2 and to Ephesians chapter 5. So let's just do that quickly so we understand what's in Peter's mind. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we hear of God creating the world, and he creates man and woman both in his image, and he gives them a task to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In that task, he initially creates man, and then announces that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he creates a helper suitable for him. And so he takes Eve from his side to create who is the mother of life. Both are made in the image of God. Both are equal in dignity. But they seem to have unique gifts and unique roles in God's initial design in the garden. Adam's name literally means ground. He is stronger physically, it seems, but unable to bear children. Eve, whose name means life, is capable of bearing children in her womb and of sustaining them with her body. And this is the teammates that God puts together to go out and fulfill the mandate with which he created them, each possessing their own gifts and pursuing those, that mandate together. It would require teamwork. Ephesians 5, then, the Apostle Paul explicitly looks back to Genesis chapter 2, And he says that this institution that God created in the beginning mysteriously and somehow is meant to point to Christ and the church. 
Man, playing the role of Jesus, is to die for his wife and for his family to care for their good, to lay down his own interests for his wife. And the woman playing the church is to humbly submit to such servant leadership. That vision may strike you as offensive and backwards, but pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. In Eden, would that have been a little bit better than it is now? Submission is obviously the big thing that's hard about this passage, but submission is at least considerably less difficult, it would seem, if the husband were truly laying down his life and his interests for the sake of his wife. When someone tries to love us and care for us and pamper us, we typically will let them, which is a picture of what submission looks like in God's initial design. The husband laying down his life and his cares and his interests for the sake of his wife. That kind of submission seems a heck of a lot easier than imagining submitting to that guy, right? The guy sitting next to you this morning, perhaps, right? Because that guy is pretty manifestly less gifted and talented than you are, right? That guy is often lazy and ineffective, unable to meet the things that you need. In fact, the thing that he seems most gifted in, and here I'm speaking of myself, seems like a superpower even of men is figuring out a way in the chaos of life to care for their own needs and protect their own interests, right? It's amazing, just confessionally, right, how I managed to find quiet and peace in the chaos of our household, right, while Kristen deals with all the mess, right? I don't know how I get there, but then I'm like, "Ah, I've made it here again, right? That seems to be... (laughs) That seems to be the main gift of men. And so submitting to that guy does strike us as not necessarily all that attractive. And, and here then we see a tension that Peter sees, which is that this institution of marriage, which is designed to be so beautiful and life-giving, runs into a fallen world and fallen people. Husbands vacillate between abdicating their, own, their leadership and using it for their own good. Wives chafe against that and have to fend for themselves. And this is actually what happens in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. There's a snake who's lying to Eve. Adam's job would have been to kill the snake and to remind his wife of what God had told them to do, and he does neither. And Eve, going in her own way, then in the curse from God at the end of chapter 3, is told that from now on, She will seek to to dominate her husband, to rule over him, and there will now be conflict between the sexes. The social structures of the first century into which Peter is speaking reflect this fallen reality. There are very few rights for women. Women are seen as inferior by nature, intrinsically. And men, as they had for all of human history and still do, to this day, have used their power and status to serve their own interests and often to abuse and exploit women. And that reality is the reality into which Peter 
is speaking here. Peter is not presenting some idyllic, leave it to beaver, 1950s marriage, right? He's not just presenting an old-fashioned way of doing it and saying, be like that. Peter is speaking into a fallen reality of marriage and calling us to holiness. The biblical ideal and the first century reality are different, and so too the 21st century reality. Perhaps surprisingly then, Peter's essential call is to live in light of the ideal even in the midst of the mess. So with this, let's turn to wives and to the text. We'll walk through the text step by step as we do. Verses 1 and 2, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Okay, so who is being addressed here? Wives, um, and, and all wives, including wives whose husbands do not obey the word. We might initially think of those who are not Christians, and that is certainly in view, and that was certainly a problem in the first century as women are converting to Christianity and their husbands are not believers. But I think it's reasonable to see it also even beyond that, to, to Christian husbands who are not obeying God's word. Peter, in chapter 1, verse 22, calls Christians to purify their souls by obedience to the truth. This idea of obedience to the truth is the opposite of what these husbands are demonstrating. And so Peter here, is calling wives to be subject to your husbands even when they are not Christians and even when they do not obey God's word and do not love you well. Play the role of the ideal marriage, play the role in the ideal marriage as God created it and designed it even when it doesn't work well. Submit to your husband's leadership and care even when he doesn't lead or care for you well. That's what Peter's calling the women here to do. The result is that the husbands will see something, will be one, he says. By what? By their respectful and pure conduct. Now, we need to deal with this word respect. In the Greek, the word is, is I'll say it just because you'll recognize it, phobos, which is related to phobia. It's just fear. What what's Peter's saying here is They'll be won by your fear and holy conduct. And the question is, who are they fearing? And this is the beginning of a clue to the key to this whole passage. It is true in other places in Scripture that Paul, for instance, speaks of wives respecting their husbands with the same word. But here I think it is more likely that Peter is speaking of the fear of God. Because wherever else he speaks of fear in this, in this letter positively, and he does often, it is in reference to fear of God. We already read that once in 122. Or 118, excuse me. Peter is telling the wives that what will win their husband, the conduct that they are supposed to display, is faithfulness to God and purity and obedience to him. The first hint here of, exilic, of the nature of exilic marriage is that the decisive relationship in that marriage is not between man and wife, but between the individual and God. 
verses 3 through 4, Peter goes on, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. At one level, and this is an important level, we have a contrast here between where our beauty resides, between internal beauty and external beauty. Women in God's creation, I'm willing to, to go this far as far as nature, women are beautiful and are cultivators of beauty. You see this in little girls, you see this in women. Women love and create beauty, and it is part of God's good design because God loves and creates beauty. Uh, I'll tell a story that is funny, mostly. <laughs> at, at our rehearsal dinner, um, I, my wife, had Kristen, had been to a number, I, I, she'd seen me give toasts at a number of rehearsal dinners before, and I wasn't yet a preacher, but I, could, I gave some pretty good toasts. And so she, I think, was looking forward to the toast that I was going to give to her at our, at our wedding. And let's just say she was quite disappointed in the toast that she got. But I'll tell you what I said, because it's true, and it's a reminder of, of this basic truth. I said, and I spent the day pondering what I was going to say, so it was, it was sincere. What I said to, to Kristen in front of all those people that night was that she was beautiful and that she made the world beautiful and that I could not wait to live in the beauty that she created in our world. And, I, and, and it's proven to be true. Women are beautiful and they cultivate beauty and that is a good part of how God has made women. But in our fallen world, there is a temptation to see that beauty as purely external and to neglect what is inside, the hidden person of the heart, as Peter here describes. And there's a challenge here for, for all of us to cultivate beauty internally as a priority rather than externally. But there's something more going on here, I think, that fits in with the broader passage, and that is this. The difference between internal and external beauty is not just on how you conceive of beauty, but, on, but to whom you are showing that beauty. Whose gaze do you seek to be beautiful in? Brothers, excuse me, not brothers, wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, whose gaze matters the most to you? Is it the mirror? Is it other women? Is it men? These are the things of the external. And Peter challenges wives here and he challenges us this morning to live for the gaze of God who sees the hidden person of the heart and who sees the beauty of that gentle and quiet godliness that there resides. The decisive question for women in this text from Peter's perspective is whether they are living before men or if they are living before God. And he calls us to live before God. And he says that when we do, that beauty is very precious to God. This word very precious is a financial word. It's very expensive. The most valuable things that you can put on your body are internal to your soul. And God sees them that way. 
again, we see this picture emerging, the fear of God, and now the gaze of God as decisive in the woman's life. Verses 5 to 6, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter turns to the example of, of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and calling him Lord is a bit odd, and we'll get there, right? But notice first, notice first what is said of these women of old and of Sarah in particular. How are they described? They are described as women who hoped in God. They were women who hoped in God. Sarah, if you remember the story from Genesis, and the, the audience would have, followed her husband Abraham out of their home and into a land they did not know. And as it turns out, Abraham was not a particularly good leader or husband as he went. He did not love Sarah the way he should have, and yet Sarah stuck with him. This is the picture that Peter paints, and it fits with this broader understanding and Peter says to Sarah, to, to these women and to us, submit to your husbands, yes. Live in that pattern that God established for marriage, but do not hope in your husbands. Your hope is not in your husbands. Your hope is in God. Your hope is not in men. Your hope is in God. This is how the godly women of old lived. You are her children, Peter says, if you do this. And then he finishes with this very strange finish. If you, do not, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And here we see the opposite of that call to fear in the first verses that we read. The wife in this exilic marriage is called to a fearlessness, to a courage, born not of fear of her husband and his intimidation, but of her fear of God. A first century pagan husband who listened to Peter's letter said, give me that, see what you're reading, would say, oh, this is good. Okay, yeah, you need to keep, keep submitting, right? But what Peter is doing subtly is completely undermining the authority that her husband has over his wife. The wife is to submit, but she is to submit in the fear of God, for the gaze of God, in the hope of God. That's the model that Peter here gives. It's worth saying here, it's important to say here, that this passage is not a sanction for abuse or suggesting that those who are abused should stay in a marriage. Abuse is a biblical grounds for divorce and dissolves the covenant and the obligations of it. And so if that is you or if you know those in an abusive relationship, this is not a call to submit there. This is a call to submit by getting out, right? Because that marriage is dissolved. The call of a godly woman then in an exilic marriage, whether to an unbeliever or to a believer who doesn't follow God's word or to a guy who's just trying to do his best, is to hope in God and live fearlessly with the role that God has given to them, even when and especially when the husband does not play his very well.
That's Peter's realistic vision of marriage. And insofar as wives do this, Peter says they have imperishable beauty that is very precious in the sight of God. This word imperishable is important to Peter. If you look back at chapter 1 and verses 3 through 4, speaking of our hope, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Conduct yourselves with fear, that's the word, throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. See, for Peter, he looks out at our world, this world in which we live, the place of our exile, and all these things, shiny as they can be, and he sees bananas rotting in your kitchen, beginning to stink and attracting flies. Everything in this world is perishable, and he calls us to live with imperishable beauty by living in light of the world to come, in light of the world that God has made and under his kingdom. In all of life, and in this particular way, we put on the garments of heaven as we live our lives in this stinky, rotting world. Okay, husbands, verse 7. Husbands get one verse, why do they only get one? Well, Peter is especially concerned here for those who are suffering. And the truth then and to some extent now is that husbands had greater status and were less likely to be the oppressed and much more likely to be the oppressor. But Peter's not going to leave husbands alone. And in this verse, though one, it packs quite a punch that we need to hear. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, by your, prayer, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, let's unpack this. Understanding way, live with your wives in an understanding way. The wooden translation of that is live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives according to truth. This is not saying to live with your wives in kind of a sympathetic, empathetic, understanding way. That's good advice, but it's good advice for everybody. That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's what love looks like. We bear with each other's weaknesses. We look over evils. And husbands, it's just as true, if not more true, for your wives as it is for you. This is not saying be gentle with your wives' weakness. This is saying something else. Your wives, of course, need to be gentle with your weakness. In addition... Here Peter is calling husbands instead to live in accordance with knowledge, which is the opposite of what those husbands in verse 1 were doing. They were not living in obedience to the word. And here he calls husbands to live in obedience to that word, according to knowledge. Or as he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, purify your souls by obedience to the truth. And the, the net result of that in verse 22 is sincere brotherly love, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the call of the husband. Weaker vessel here, maybe the worst part of this from some of our perspectives, right? It's pretty simple. It probably just means that women are physically weaker than men on the whole. And we, that's, that's 
observable and true. But the command is the important part, and the command is to honor women. The Bible teaches consistently that men and women are equal in dignity, both made in the image of God, and nowhere does it suggest that men are superior in any intrinsic way to women. Genesis 2, God's made all of creation, and the one thing that he says is not good is not having women around. Men, Peter says, remember this. Point one, you are not superior to your wives. Your wives are not inferior to you. Point two, though, act like they are superior to you. Not only are they not inferior to you, you want to honor them as though they were superior. The world should look at you men and believe that you think women are more important, more dignified, more worthy of honor than men. And the grounds for this is that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. We need to know how countercultural this message would have been. Women were not allowed to inherit in the Roman world. The idea that women could be heirs would have made, you, made people laugh. But here in God's kingdom, women are heirs, co-heirs with men. Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Women are co-heirs with men. They are worthy of dignity and honor. This is what underlies what Paul says in Ephesians 5, lay down your lives for your wife as though it was the, she was the greatest treasure in the world, worthy of the most honor imaginable. Your interests do not matter compared to hers. This is the call of the husband. Part of this, though not explicit in this particular verse worth saying, is that that means that men, we need to look at our wives and we need to look at women the way that God looks at our wives and looks at women. There are many ways in which 21st century is a more enlightened time in terms of equal rights for women. But one way in which, to our great shame and scandal, continues to be an issue today is the way that men look at women, the way that men observe the beauty of women, focusing entirely on the external. Husbands, sons, brothers, See the women in your life the way that God sees them. Crane your neck to see the hidden person of the heart. Young men who someday will think about dating, do not eliminate 80% of the girls in your life from consideration because they're not pretty enough in some estimation. That is folly and it is sin. We need to repent. To this, Peter adds, quite powerfully at the end, a threat. 
Do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think this is amazing. Peter, the whole message to, to the wives in verses 1 through 6 was to live into this relationship, to live into this role that God has ordained for women in marriage, right? Secure in your relationship with God, right? Submit to Abraham, hope in God. And here, to men, he says, live into your role that God has given you. Honor women, lay down your life for them. Consider them more worthy of honor than yourselves at threat of your relationship with God. To not do this is to sin grievously and to hinder your relationship with God and your prayers. Okay. Land the plane. This passage is of one with the whole book of 1 Peter, which is calling us to live these godly lives, lives in accordance with the kingdom of God, even during our time of exile in this place. That includes playing the roles that God established in marriage, which point to Jesus, even though we play them with sinners and in a world of sin. And one thing that Peter points out to us and seems particularly interesting to him is that in doing this, we point to Jesus. Verse 12 of chapter 2, we read a few weeks ago, Keep your, conduct, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Wives are addressed with the goal of winning their husbands through the beauty which, which they display. Wives, live in such godliness and fear of God with such humility that your husband sees Jesus when he sees you. That even if he is not faithful to God and even if he is sinful in his ways, that he will see the beauty of God in your conduct. Husbands, show your wives Jesus by loving her like he does. Do Ephesians 5. Lay down your lives for your wife. Do this even and especially when she does not want it or deserve it or appreciate it. That describes Christ's love for us. And together, in a godly marriage, show the world what the gospel looks like. Our world loves romance, always has, always will. I think it's reasonable to say that the reason the world loves romance is not simply because romance is pretty, but because the thing that romance and marriage are designed to show forth is the gospel itself. And so even as Hollywood has a lot of weird ideas about romance and it's not the place to learn about it, may your marriage, as you love one another, like Adam and Eve were designed to love one another, with the garments of imperishable beauty of the kingdom that is to come, may it show forth Christ to the world. And then, when you go out and fail 
as you will in about five minutes, in about two hours, and day after day, to love your wife or to love your husband the way that you are called. May your marriage itself point you back to Jesus. And there see the one who submitted himself for your sake, who laid down his life for your sake, that you might be redeemed, even though you're kind of a dunce. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your word, even when it challenges us. God, we pray that you would help us to walk with the imperishable beauty of the world to come, even as we exist in a world that is often rotten. God, give us strength to do that in our marriages, even as we are sinners married to sinners. May our marriage, even in the midst of our sin, give testimony to your gospel, both to the world and to ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.